Greetings and welcome to another episode of Unpacking Islamophobia, a podcast project brought to you by the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University. My name is Arsalan Iftikhar and I am a senior fellow at the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown. I'm also an, a human rights lawyer and author of the book, Fear of a Muslim Planet, Global Islamophobia in the New World Order. And joining me today is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, a Democrat from the 5th Congressional District of Minnesota, representing both Minneapolis and its surrounding suburbs. Uh, many of you know, in January 2019, Congresswoman Omar became the first African refugee to become a member of Congress, the first woman of color to represent Minnesota, and one of the first two Muslim American women elected to Congress that night, along with Rashida Taleb from Michigan. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, assalamu alaikum, and thank you for joining me today. Alaikum salam, Arsalan. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. It's my honor. And Congresswoman, uh, you know, you, you can't start a podcast about Islamophobia without talking about uh, political Islamophobia here in the United States. And, you know, many of us know that political Islamophobia is becoming a concrete part of the modern day national Republican ideological party platform to run for president, right? Many of us might remember uh, Donald Trump and all of his stupid Muslim travel bans, but we often forget that before Trump got the nomination, there were actually 16 other Republican presidential candidates who were really trying to out-Islamophobe each other during their unsuccessful presidential runs. For example, we have former House Speaker and GOP candidate Newt Gingrich, who once called Sharia Islamic law a, quote, mortal threat to the survival of the United States. You have former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee, who once publicly described Islam as a religion that, quote, promotes the mur most murderous mayhem on the planet. In the past, other Republican candidates have proposed requiring a loyalty oath for American Muslims, like the late pizza magnate Herman Cain. And one of them even said that both Muslims and Hindus should not be allowed to run for president in America. That was Trump's head secretary and former brain surgeon Ben Carson. So Congressman, my first question to you is that as one of the three Muslim members of Congress today, can you please tell us a little bit about your thoughts about Islamophobia within the Republican Party today as we head into the 2024 presidential election season? Oh my goodness, where do we start? <laughs> um, I mean, it wasn't just the fact that um, it was used by Trump and other Republicans in the presidential, um, the 2016 presidential election to uh, sort of gin up and mobilize their base through their their hate for Muslims, um, and and this really bizarre fear that they that they have uh, that I believe is based on on ignorance and ugliness, um, but but you know Trump literally was the godfather of the birther movement, and that essentially was couched in this belief that not only was Obama, the, the former president, born outside of uh, the United States, but that he somehow was secretly Muslim, and that was the disqualifying piece. And, you know, we've come a long way from um, the McCain era of saying, right, like, this is not uh, okay, to an era where you are encouraged to be as Islamophobic as, as you can be, because that, like, politically is the most viable thing to do, that there is an actual base ready to vote for you and support you and uplift you if you are willing to go down this 
you know, rhetoric of, of Islamophobic um, hate. And, and it shows because there is no consequences, right? You had the Muslim ban. We, we obviously understand that their hate has also informed policy, but you, you also have people in, in Congress today who showed up <laughs> the day Rashida and I got sworn in. Um, and we're literally chasing us around, trying to get us to get sworn in on, on the Bible, not understanding how that is against the, our constitutional right. Um, and and it, actually, there is no requirement to be sworn in on any sort of literature from any faith group. You can basically, you know, take uh, any book from the library and put your hand on it if you if you wanted to you know the 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 Boberts of the world who can openly joke about a Muslim woman getting on an elevator with her uh, and and her you know not being scared because uh, she didn't see a backpack that was visible and didn't have to worry about you know her colleague blowing herself up and so it is it's growing. And it's been, you know, main mainstreamed in a way that the denunciation of it from some of us really is is no longer tracking or um, or having an impact in any kind of way. And 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 I think that's where the danger is because the recourses for the kind of hateful rhetoric that is around the the Muslim community when it comes to Republicans, we know, leads to violent consequences and. It is scary to know that there isn't much that we can do um, outside of have these conversations and draw attention to it. Yeah, you know, when, when people often think of Islamophobia, they sometimes only view it as an American construct. But as, as you and I both know, global Islamophobia is metastasizing uh, all over the world. And it's, it's leading to genocidal levels in, in places like India, China, and Myanmar. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, uh, especially because of the fact that, you know, of all of the work that you uh, did on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. But I, I first want to focus uh, on, on India, the homeland of Mahatma Gandhi, uh, which is currently being ruled by a right-wing ethno-nationalist firebrand named Narendra Modi, who is no stranger to Islamophobia. Uh, you know, what most people don't know about him is that uh, in 2002, Narendra Modi was actually the chief minister, the AKA governor of the Indian Western state of Gujarat, uh, where at that time when 2000 innocent Muslims were brutally slaughtered uh, during anti-Muslim pogroms uh, on Modi's watch. Uh, he was once called India's Vladimir Putin by historian William Dalrymple. And uh, you know, during these pogroms, large number of Muslim girls were raped, men were cut to pieces, pregnant women had their women uh, wombs slit open and their fetuses uh, destroyed in front of them. And two decades since that time, the plight of 200 million uh, minorities, predominantly Muslims and Christians and Dalits, pejoratively known as the untouchables, has only gotten worse with things like the Citizenship Amendment Act, the annexation of the Muslim majority region of Kashmir, and daily bias motivated acts against Muslims, Christians, Dalits, and other minorities in India. And so Congresswoman, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share with us your thoughts on Narendra Modi, India, and the future of 200 million minorities that live in uh, Mahatma Gandhi's ancestral homeland. 
Yeah, I mean, we should also say, you know, the 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 movement and and the the, the political movement that that supports and and that Modi is part of is is also responsible for the assassination or or the death of Gandhi. And so, so I think that's that's also a, a piece of this, right? Uh, that that should be known and and those that used to be shunned in in that movement for their involvement now are are celebrated and are being brought back in into the uh, into public life as some sort of of heroes what's happening in india should be alarming to to everyone obviously to the United States, it is an ally. It is, you know, a, a country that that many of us know and care about. I grew up uh, watching Bollywood movies, and there was this this colorful India that that sort of um, has always been presented to to the world that is multi ethnic, multi religion, and one that just seemed to be very vibrant, welcoming, and I think. Obviously, the underbelly of the hate that that existed there, um, and and one that the one that is uh, towards Muslims and any religious minority wasn't one that I think everybody has been made aware of. Now we know that over the two hundred million Muslims that are living in in India, reports are showing that um, India is on the last step of of genocide that if actions are not taken to to mitigate that there is going to be genocide of over 200 million um Muslims in 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 India and i think the fact that there's still hesitancy that the the administration the Biden administration is hesitant in marking India as a country of concern is problematic in many ways. The fact that the UN has not taken any any action, uh, I think, is, is problematic. Um, and, you know, it's not only, I, I think, worrisome to, to those who share the Muslim faith or those of the diaspora community of, of India, but, but it is every single person that truly cares about human rights, that cares about, you know, uh, atrocities and, and, and genocide uh, that is raising the alarm and saying <laughs> there's something awful that is happening in, in India and it's about to explode uh, if, if we don't do something about it. And I think um, in many circles, still Modi is is looked at as a leader of a democratic state and not as someone who is part of a fascist movement, someone who has not condemned or hasn't taken any actions to to stop this sort of slow movement towards genocide of, of Muslim minorities in India. Moving next door to China, uh, Congresswoman, uh, and it's genocide of one million Uyghur Muslim men, women, and children inside of internment camps. It's pretty astonishing that the 2022 uh, Beijing Winter Olympics were allowed to start and finish without a peep from the international community, condemning, condemning China's attempt at erasing Islamic identity from uh, across China. According to the Atlantic Magazine, uh, during inside these internment camps, uh, many Uyghur Muslims have been forced to renounce Islam, criticize basic Muslim practices and even recite communist propaganda uh, songs uh, on, during their daily routines. Uh, there is systemic rape and torture of people being forced to eat pork and drink alcohol, both of which are forbidden to observe in Muslims. Uh, and really the Chinese government is again allowed to uh, 
commit the slow genocide of one million of its own people inside internment camps and get to host uh, an Olympic Games. And so, Congresswoman, can you please tell us your views on China and its ongoing genocidal campaign of ethnic cleansing against one million plus Uyghur Muslim men, women and children and why the American government and international community should take more action against them? Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is uh, an, another case that that is baffling, um, heartbreaking, and and really problematic. I think to anybody who who really cares about human dignity uh, um, and humanity in in general. Yesterday, I had two women who were held in those encampments who, you know, one one of the women was there for 11 months. The other was there, I think, two years. Um, and then a third woman was also with them whose sister has been held since uh, 2018. And they, you know, in, in a very heartbreaking way, described the ordeal they've gone through, the, the constant rapes they endured, um, the, the separation from their families, um, the the humiliating conditions they had to live with, the, the 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 torture they had to endure, but also talked about after their release and even prior to being put in the encampments, that they somehow had to have a Chinese person stay with them. Um, and for each member of the family, there had to be one person. And, you know, there's this idea that your your life will be controlled and monitored by the state is, is something that, you know, to, to us sounds insane, um, but it's normal life for Uyghurs in, in China. And then we also know about, you know, the, the harvesting that, that, have been, that has been uh, reported, harvesting of organs. We know the forced labor uh, that actually is being benefited by some American companies as well. And, you know, although we have passed legislation here in Congress to, to support and uplift what has happened to, to the Uyghurs, to, to hold China accountable, again, it is one of those situations where we still have not done enough, that there are still people out there who will say it, there is no genocide that is taking place. There is no systematic torture and punishment and imprisonment of, of Muslims in, in China, including some Muslim countries that, that have come out uh, in, in support of that, which is something that, I, that I, I constantly do whenever I'm in the presence of a Muslim ambassador or any Muslim that is a head of a state uh, to, to pressure them to to, to lend their voice to, to the struggle um, of, of the Uyghurs. And the last administration was willing to say that there was genocide taking place with the Trump administration. And we haven't been able to get the Biden administration uh, to, to do so. I understand that, you know, collaboration and bilateral relationships are, are important, but we're also a country that, that professes values of upholding human rights and international <laughs> law. Um, responding to atrocities, preventing uh, genocide. Um, and, and I believe there is more that needs to be done. I do hope uh, that that folks understand what's what's taking place and are holding the administration uh, and other electeds uh, accountable. And I think, 
In the case of, of China and India, this is why it's so important. People always say to me, like, why do you talk about Islamophobia? What, what does it mean? And, and it, it is not the one-off where, you know, somebody's uh, pushing someone down the street or the removal of a hijab from a young uh, girl or, you know, the, the, the kind of discriminations that some of us face in, in the workplace. Um, but, but it's the severity of it that, that can lead to, to genocide, and we've certainly seen it in Burma, um, in Myanmar, with the Rohingyas. Uh, and, and so it, it is just for us to be worried, <laughs> for us to be alarmed, because we, we have seen it quietly happen. And I, and I think it's important and, and an imperative of all of us who have platforms to, to make sure that we are alerting people to the possibility of another um, or a similar Rohingya genocide taking place in India and China. Well, Congresswoman, my, my next question is about uh, Myanmar, uh, which is right next door to China, uh, the country formerly known as Burma. Uh, under the watchful gaze of 1991 Nobel Peace Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, the military junta government has committed crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing against, as you mentioned, one million Rohingya Muslims who have essentially been ethnically cleansed into neighboring Bangladesh. Uh, in January 2020, the World Court at The Hague issued an actual, uh, a formal ruling finding the country and government of Myanmar to be guilty of genocide. And two years later, Amnesty International publicly condemned the government of Myanmar for their graves cri grave crimes uh, under international law. And so, Congresswoman, I wanted you to, to flesh out a little bit more about the situation with the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, uh, who many of whom are languishing, uh, you know, as refugees in, in neighboring Bangladesh, and, and what do you think should happen to them? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I recently uh, served um, as part of a parliamentary inquiry in into Myanmar and uh, the atrocities committed against the the, the Rohingyas. Um, I was the only U.S. representative to be part of that parliamentary inquiry. There were members of Asian parliaments, uh, African parliaments, European parliaments. And, you know, we we, we ended up putting out a, a, a report. I think one of the things that people um, might not have, have seen, I think the... The, the Rohingya refugee story has been covered, but the actual atrocity has not been fully covered or, or, or talked about, right? We, we, there was mass burning of people's homes and demolitions. You know, there was mass rapes, uh, mass slaughter, where uh, not, not just the state actors, but community as well. And I think the, the, the kind of trauma experienced by, by the survivors is also something that people are not fully thinking about. About. You know, as, as a refugee, someone who had to escape her own country, I didn't experience the, the level of trauma they experienced, but it takes some time for you to be able to, to process that. I think just being uprooted from your home is one thing, but to be brutally uprooted from your home uh, is, is another. And the reality is that even as refugees, they're still dealing with with crises. There was just a, an article today talking about the other ring and and some of the brutality they're experiencing in in Bangladesh. And you know, you you take a, a country that doesn't have a lot of resources, and you have an influx of refugee community that is dealing with a lot of trauma. The the clashes can can happen. I think the international community has a responsibility to, to support Bangladeshi government uh, to try to make sure they have the resources to be able to fully take care 
of the Rohingya community. And, and obviously, once there is a political solution in Myanmar, because they're still going through a lot, a lot of challenges um, politically, they should be able to be brought back and, and be able to, to live in peace in, in their home country. My final question to you, uh, Congresswoman, uh, is about the European Union. Uh, you know, you talked about the repatriation of refugees. I'm an international human rights lawyer. You know, we obviously know the challenges that refugees face. But, you know, much like the United States and other Western nations, you know, we've seen a, a meteoric rise of Islamophobia uh, in Europe, uh, in the EU uh, over the last two decades from France and the rise of right wing Marine Le Pen and Front National. Uh, and the 2004 hijab bans uh, that then-President Jacques Chirac had imposed to Holland with Gert Wilders and Hungary and the rise of Viktor Orban, and most recently uh, with Italy and, uh, you know, the election of a 36-year-old blonde fascist Gen X woman named Giorgia Maloney, uh, you know, who are all using uh, Islam and Muslims as political footballs, especially for incoming uh, refugees, uh, uh, the refugee versus migrant debate uh, in many parts of, of Germany. And uh, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, what are your thoughts on the future of 50 million uh, European Muslims and incoming Muslim refugees who face rising Islamophobia all across Europe today? Yeah, I mean, I, we're forgetting Sweden and and, um, and Hungary and other places. No, I mean it. It is it is alarming, and you know I I am grateful to to folks like you and and handful of of others that are constantly trying to to make sure that the American public and, and the world is is aware of of what what is taking place and the dangers of Islamophobia and the policies that are informing it pose for for the Muslim community in in Europe. I mean, my my hope is that the, the the muslim community in in europe sort of takes the the kind of lead that that we've done here in the united states you know when when we there were two times i think where we were in the thick of islamophobia right that was post 911 very dangerous time for Muslim Americans. Um, and then the rise of the Tea Party in, in 2010, that was also the all the anti-Sharia <laughs> laws that, that were everywhere. I, I, I was living in North Dakota, so I like experienced it in a very uniquely um, scary way. And I, and I think that our response in both of those times, at, at least the majority of Muslims, was to say how... Can we try to be as as active as possible? How can we participate in society in a way that that assures conversations are not going to be had about us without us? And I think us persevering um, and and fighting through those hard times and not doing what some of the elders in our community wanted us to do, which was to hide, to diminish our light, to dim our voice. Um, that I think has produced the kind of progress that we have seen for Muslims in, in the United States. And, and that is my hope that they will take this challenging moment and turn it into an opportunity uh, to, to, to allow themselves to dominate the conversation as much as they can to prove that we are not to be bullied. We are not to be silenced. We are not um, to to be eliminated from you know the the public discourse. I, I, I think about the 
the hijab ban and, and what that that means in France. Uh, I think it's incredibly important. There was a campaign internationally to respond to that, to continue to have those kind of engagements. I think there have been Muslim leaders who've been able to respond to the the Quran burnings in Sweden, you know, the the more there is solidarity between, you know, those of us on on a local level and Muslim heads of state uh talking about the the importance of of us having our religious liberty uh respected as much as everyone else's religious liberty is is respected. It's important. And I, you know, I we can't end this this conversation about international Islamophobia without giving a shout out to Imran Khan, the former prime minister of Pakistan, who actually passed a resolution at the UN talking about uh, Islamophobia and, and its dangers, which inspired the Islamophobia bill that we introduced uh, and passed in the last Congress. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, I want to thank you for joining us today on the Unpacking Islamophobia podcast, and I wish you the best of luck in the future. Thank you. For more information, please visit bridge.georgetown.edu and thank you for joining us here today.